0: You've been fascinated by Mount Everest and the history of mankind conquering the tallest peak on the planet. You know, in the 1950s, there was a race to be the first nation to summit Mount Everest. And in 1953, the British were up and they felt the pressure. They were granted a one year chance to do an expedition to Everest. But the French had 1954, the Swiss had 1955. So if the British failed to summit, they wouldn't get another chance until 1956. So the pressure was on. They had to summit in 1953. And so they assigned Army Colonel John Hunt to lead this expedition. It was more like a military operation. And he was to make sure they got to the top of Mount Everest. In the spring of 1953, the first attempt was made. And yet a pair of men, Tom Bordillon, Charles Evans. We don't remember their names because they, they didn't make it to the top. They got within 300 feet of summiting Everest, but oxygen tank problems prevented them from making it all the way. They had to turn back and go back down. The next day though, a second attempt was made by New Zealander Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa Tenzing Norgay. And on May 27th at 1130 AM, they became the first humans ever to reach the top of Mount Everest. They stayed only 15 minutes at the top. They took a few photographs to prove they really made it all the way up there. They reached the highest point on planet Earth. News spread pretty fast of their feet, made it all the way back to London. Coincidentally, and it was announced on the same morning of Queen Elizabeth II's uh, coronation or inauguration. They returned some days later and found they had already been appointed knights of the British Empire. The governments of Nepal and India likewise showered them with awards and gifts. When you think about, though, there's always some disparity between those who receive the glory and those who do all the work. And don't get me wrong, Edmund Hillary deserves his recognition because most humans are not even physically capable of summoning Everest, especially back then. But what about his companion, Tenzing? Now, Hillary could not have made it to the top without him. And he too summited Everest first, but he was not knighted. He received a lesser medal, that's about it. Also, part of the summit of Everest was named after Hillary. It's called the Hillary Step, but it was not named after his companion, Tenzing. He received... Far less glory, although he too summited Everest at the same time. He was also the first guy up there. And then what about the hundreds of people who supported this expedition? And literally, it took 400 people just for those two guys to make it to the top. They all played support roles. This expedition employed 362 porters carrying 10,000 pounds of luggage and supplies, There are also 20 other Sherpa guides and 20 other mountaineers. They provided the climbers invaluable training on acclimation, oxygen intake, uh, hydration. They also built all these base camps up the mountain. They were hauling oxygen tanks up to the base camps. It's like intense labor. They did all that labor just for these two guys to make it to the top. Long story short, Hillary had a 0% chance of summoning Everest if it weren't for the efforts of hundreds of people who supported him. But where's their recognition? Where's, where's their glory? History doesn't remember the names of most of those people. But that's simply how it often goes. Those in front or those in top get the glory. Their names are remembered. Everyone else just gets forgotten. But let us not forget that all the great achievements of all great men really come on the backs and shoulders of countless unnamed others. And that is equally true when it comes to the monumental growth of the early church. And after the the Lord Jesus rose and ascended, he gave gifts to all of his disciples. He gave them a mission to build up and build out this church. And all believers are called to partake in this work. Now, yes, some play a more prominent role than others, a more public role, given their gifting, given their skill, given God's providence. They go out in front. They lead. They may do great things. They may even receive a measure of recognition, fame, you might say. But it must be remembered that the work of the ministry is a team effort. No preacher, no pastor, no apostle even could accomplish great things apart from the grace of God and and that grace working through a multitude of other people. So this lesson must not be lost on us, that every position matters, every gift matters, every contribution in the church matters. This is how the church will grow. Like Paul said in Ephesians, by the proper working of each individual part. And you really see a perfect example of this with the early church early church, spread rapidly across the ancient world, even in hostile territory. I mean, just think of, of the, the cultural setting in which Christianity was birthed. It was a thoroughly pagan Roman world that even had forced emperor worship. So to, to start a brand new religion that focused on the exclusive worship of this crucified Jew as the divine Messiah, that's just impossible. You're not going to start that religion in Rome. But that's what happened. How did this happen? Well, when you read the New Testament, one man gets a lot of attention and you might think deserves a lot of credit. And that is the apostle Paul. And it is safe to say that indeed, no one was used by God more than Paul to spread the gospel in the early church. He's worthy of that recognition. Paul did sacrifice his entire life after his conversion, traveling far and wide to share the gospel plant churches, writing essentially half the New Testament. These are monumental spiritual feats, like like summoning Everest. But the Apostle Paul cannot take the glory that belongs to, to God alone, because apart from God's grace, Paul would still be Saul, the enemy of the church. And Paul can't take all the credit that's shared among the hundreds of other believers who contributed to the work of the ministry and the building up of the early church. Edmund Hillary never would have summoned Everest without those 400 plus other people supporting. And likewise, Paul never would have accomplished all he did without the selfless sacrificial service of countless others. And the work of the ministry truly is a team sport. All must work together. You must not forget this. Even if you're not out in front, even if you're not the person who's going to summit the mountain, maybe you're just the person carrying the luggage. But you have to remember that according to the Lord, your role matters just as much. Because we're all working toward a common goal. And that goal is not to build our name or our kingdom. It's to build Christ's name and his kingdom And we all need to just selflessly work together toward that end. Whatever role you play, we're all aiming at the same thing. The Apostle Paul knew this. He wasn't seeking his own fame or notoriety. I mean, he got it just by nature of serving in the way he did, but he wasn't looking for it. And to the contrary, we see him just continually showing an overwhelming support and appreciation to all the people who were around him and behind him. He knew that his work did not come alone and he wanted everyone in the church to be encouraged just to keep serving no matter their role, because he knew that that's how the Lord was going to build the church. It wasn't just through him, even though to us, like he did so much, but he knew it'd all be for nothing if it weren't for everyone else. And this appreciation, this encouragement, we often see it put on display in the conclusions of Paul's epistles and And as we're here in Colossians 4, that's very much the case. In fact, really more than most other letters, we see this put on display here at the end of Colossians. So, if you're not there already, turn again to Colossians chapter 4. As we finally reach the conclusion of this letter. After a long time and many COVID delays, we're finally at the conclusion of Colossians. This final section, verses 7 through 18, concludes this short letter and second, only to Romans, the conclusion of Colossians is just chock full of these farewell greetings and commendations by the Apostle Paul. It's such a short letter, it almost seems excessive, and you might be tempted to tune out such a passage in Scripture. And after all, it's just name after name of all these people you don't know, and they're long gone, so like this is, in your mind, this might be a place to just kind of skip over But these types of farewell greeting passages in scripture are more purposeful than you might think. You know, for one, Paul himself was endearing himself to the Colossian church, which he had never met. The same goes for Romans. That's another very long farewell section, even though he'd never been to the church of Rome at that time. But he's showing these churches that even though he'd he'd not met them in person, he, he cares about them. He's thinking about them. He values them. And he wants them to know it. In addition, though, I believe God providentially has included these passages in his inspired scriptures because he wants us to be encouraged. We're not the Colossian church. Paul's long gone. The Colossian church is long gone. This letter was not written directly to us. But by way of God's inspiration, it it was all scriptures inspired by God, profitable and applies to the church in every age. And we are meant to drive encouragement even from a passage like this. And here we're instructed and encouraged just by this farewell section and that the church is not built alone. Even if your name does not go down in history, you can contribute to this eternal work in meaningful ways. And indeed you must. The Lord Jesus is pleased ultimately just by the faithful service of all of his disciples no matter what role they play, that's what matters. We see that put on loud display in this little conclusion passage. You're not the apostle Paul. You may not be the one chosen to summit the mountain. Your name might not be remembered, but still be encouraged in in the role you play and just make sure you're faithfully serving in your role. And today we're going to look at various characters Paul commends in this final passage, and and they give us this encouragement by their faithful example. These are just faithful. Their names are recorded, but to us, there might as well be no names. Never heard of them before. You probably won't think of them again, but we can be encouraged by their faithful example of just selfless, sacrificial service to the Lord. This is how he will build his church. And so may we be motivated to, to press on and do the same. So let's begin with some of these character sketches. The first is Tychicus. We'll start with Tychicus verses 7 and 8. Let's read those again. Colossians 4, look at verse 7. He gets to the end, he says, verse 7, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose... That you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And at this point, Paul just finished the body of his letter. He's said to them everything he wanted to say to them in writing. He has more to say to them, though. It's just, it's going to come in person through this messenger. And here we finally learn who the messenger is. His name is Tychicus. I, I bet Tychicus is unfamiliar to you. But he was not unfamiliar to Paul. To Paul, who was he? And Paul gives three heartfelt descriptions of this man in verse 7. He says, first, he's our beloved brother. Brother Adelphos. It's a term the Christians hijacked and they applied to everyone as a term of endearment. All of us are adopted children into God's family. And so that makes us all brothers and sisters. Tychicus was one such brother in the faith, but he was a beloved brother. He was special to Paul as a brother. We'll find out why in a little bit here. Secondly, Tychicus was a faithful servant, he says. This is the word for deacon or minister. And whether he actually had the title of deacon doesn't even matter. He was clearly a servant of the church. And in that service, it says he was found faithful. That really is the most important thing because that's the measuring stick the Lord uses to to gauge his disciples, faithfulness. He does not judge ministry success by results per se because we're not in control of the results. Salvation and the building of the church are dependent on a movement of God's grace. We don't control that. We are nonetheless given a part to play. And and in that, we're simply called to be faithful. Whether you teach or preach or give or serve or help, just be faithful. And whether you present to the Lord two talents or, or ten talents, just be found faithful. And you'll hear from the Lord those words of approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. And Tychicus was one of those good and faithful servants. And then thirdly, Paul describes Tychicus as a fellow bondservant in the Lord. It's not the same term for servant just used. This is literally a form of the word for slave. And remember, that's how Paul often identified himself. He didn't throw around, around his, his weight and, and claim to be the, you know, Paul, the greatest apostle there ever was. But he most often introduced himself, like in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant or a bondslave of the Lord Christ Jesus. He was a slave of Christ. One who no longer serves his own will, but the will of his master. And this is a fitting title for Paul because the Lord directly called him and converted him and, and made him his own. And thereafter, Paul dedicated the rest of his life to serving Jesus as his Lord and master. That describes Tychicus as well. He too is just sold out in his service to the Lord. Paul says he's a fellow bondservant in the Lord. Paul, Paul's not the only one. And so we're getting the picture that, that this guy Tychicus was just, you know, a stellar man of the church. And that explains why Paul is using him. He's sending him with this letter to the Colossian church in hand. Verse seven, Titus was chosen to deliver this letter to the church. Verse seven says to bring them information. Paul adds in verse eight that he sent him for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances. There was more to say about Paul's situation; but he just didn't want to write it down. Whether that was because he was running out of his short little piece of parchment. Or maybe he didn't want to put things down about his trial in writing to maybe protect himself. We don't know. And some things are just better shared in person. But the churches were anxious to learn of Paul's status. And so Tychicus was going to show up and and fill him in. He was going to tell him the full scoop of Paul's imprisonment, the trial, the gospel in Rome, and so forth. And in so doing, he adds in verse 8, that Tychicus would encourage their hearts meaning just to lift their spirits, basically just cheer them up. And that's because for many believers, Paul's imprisonment was discouraging. It was seen as a huge setback to the progress of the gospel. Like, you know, the number one guy is now sidelined in Rome for two years. But just as Paul reassured the Philippians, to whom he also wrote during the same time, that no, actually his improvement, or rather his imprisonment, has led to that the further progress of the gospel, the greater progress of the gospel. The gospel can't be imprisoned. That God was using all these circumstances for his greater glory and greater purposes. I mean, in prison, the gospel was even spreading in Caesar's household. That never would have happened otherwise. And so for the Colossians, Tychicus would be the one to encourage their hearts, letting them know like, no, no, God's still in control. It's actually good. Good things are happening. The gospel is progressing. So in all though, you find this guy Tychicus was a pretty important guy to Paul. You may have never heard of him. Likely you you never think about him, but he played an essential role. And that's really just par for the course for Tychicus. He actually shows up five times in the New Testament. And he's always in a critical service capacity. And look here, verse seven, eight, Paul spends most of his time commending Tychicus to the Colossian church compared to all the other names. And so I'm going to spend a little extra time just filling out the character sketch of Tychicus for you from scripture. And we're just going to see how he really does fit the bill of, of this faithful, devoted, beloved servant of Christ. And we first meet Tychicus in Acts chapter 20. Paul is nearing the end of his third missionary journey and he was preparing to return to Jerusalem. During this time, Paul had been collecting a special offering from all the churches. He was going to take it back to give to the poor saints of Jerusalem. He did this for a couple of reasons. For one, it was just to help the poor in Jerusalem But there's also a strategic reason that that Paul was trying to build a bond between the Jewish mother church in Jerusalem and all these other Gentile churches that were springing up. They were one in Christ. Paul wanted to, to foster this oneness, having all these Gentile churches give to support the Jewish mother church. So he passed through Macedonia, Achaia, Galatia, Asia Minor. He's going through all these churches. He's collecting a special offering from them. He's going to take it back to Jerusalem. At the same time, he's also collecting representatives from these churches. They would go on to accompany Paul, kind of like emissaries, and they'd go with him to Jerusalem. They'd represent all these Gentile churches. And Tychicus was chosen to be one of those representatives. We learn Acts 20 verse 4. Seven men accompanied Paul on his return trip to Jerusalem. Tychicus was one of those men. It says he came from Asia, that that just means Asia Minor. Most likely it actually is talking about Ephesus itself, the main city there. And there's there's a high chance that Tychicus was himself converted under Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus. Either way though, he's already proven himself faithful and reliable to accompany Paul on this several month trip to Jerusalem. That's not a small ask. That's that's pretty big sacrifice. I mean, traveling back then, it's taken up several months of your life. It's extremely uncomfortable and not to mention dangerous. You have the elements, disease, starvation, robbers, wild animals, shipwreck. Travel is not it's not the same. And then you add to that all these warnings Paul was receiving along the way. Like, don't go back to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest you and maybe even kill you when you get there. And so these seven representatives, what are they supposed to think? Like, what's going to happen to them? They have a chance of being found guilty by association. Just being with Paul when he shows up in Jerusalem. Yet, kiss. he signed up anyway. He, he's going to give months of his life to serve the Lord under Paul. And really though, that would turn from months to years because indeed Paul gets to Jerusalem and they were trying to kill him. He gets taken by the Jews. They were plotting to kill him. They would have killed him unless the Romans intervened. They did. They captured Paul. They held him. And Paul is actually held captive by the Romans for two years, just in protection from the Jews. The Jews, though, after those two years, they were getting ready to assassinate Paul. And so his hand was forced. He did the only thing he could do to save his life. And that was to appeal to Caesar to stand trial before Caesar. That meant he would be shipped off to Rome. And that's what he did. Off to Rome, he went. You know, what happened to Tychicus and these other six envoys at the time? We, we don't know for sure. But we do know that when Paul is in Rome, well, guess who's there? Tychicus is is there. He's there ministering to Paul's needs during that first Roman imprisonment. And there, Paul spends another two years just waiting to stand before Caesar. And so altogether, we got four years now, and it's likely Tychicus was just there with Paul for most of that time. Just talk about being a faithful, fellow bondservant. Now we also know. That after Paul's eventual release from that first Roman pr- imprisonment, this guy Tychicus, he's, he's still with him. Later on, Paul called Titus to join him at Nicopolis. Titus was the pastor on the island of Crete. He couldn't just leave his church behind though. So according to Titus 3.12, Paul sends Tychicus to Crete to take over. Just so that Titus can come visit him. He's like an interim pastor. That happens again. Fast forward, basically like 10 years. Paul's second Roman imprisonment is the one that will eventually take his life. And Tychicus is still there with him. He's just like always there. Paul is facing execution. He desired to see his his special child in the faith, Timothy, one last time. He's passing the baton to Timothy. Timothy's pastor in Ephesus. He likewise can't leave his church behind. So according to 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus. He goes, he relieves Timothy. Timothy's able to visit Paul one last time. Look, you don't send just anybody though to take over these churches for four to six months or however long that travel takes. And clearly if Paul didn't trust Tychicus as a servant with a shepherd's heart, he would have never sent him. But Tychicus was worthy. It also helped that Tychicus was likely from Ephesus. So the church would have known him. The same goes for Colossians, the church of Colossae. They're relatively close together. There's a good chance the Colossian church already knew who Tychicus was. And so getting into Colossians now, you have a combination of, of just his faithfulness and his familiarity that Paul is now sending this guy, Tychicus, on another mission. This time, not as interim pastor, but as messenger. And Tychicus is going to be the primary bearer of this letter. He shows up, he's got the letter to the Colossians in hand. But it's taken a little further because this is not the only letter of the Bible Tychicus delivered. In this same trip, he's also holding in his other hand, the letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote Colossians and Ephesians back to back in prison there. They're a hundred miles apart. They're in the same region. So naturally then Paul is going to send both of these letters with the same messenger that that is take a kiss. Just flip back to Ephesians six and you'll see this for yourself. The conclusion to Ephesians, it's pretty much the same thing. Ephesians 6, 21. He says to the nearby neighboring church of Ephesus Ephesians 6, 21, he says, But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, that he may comfort your hearts. Nearly word for word the same as what he says in Colossians. So Tychicus was the bearer of Ephesians as well. many believe that Ephesians was not primarily addressed just to the church of Ephesus, but is intended to be a a cyclical letter, meaning it's supposed to spread around the region. If that's the case, really, Tychicus is being sent on his own little missionary journey, going from town to town, spreading the writings of Paul around. We already know for a fact that was the case with Laodicea. Go back to Colossians 4. Look down at verse 16. This is a a very close town to Colossae, just a few miles away, Laodicea, in the Lycus River Valley. Colossians 4.16, he tells the church, When this letter is read among you, Colossians, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And a side note, some actually believe that the letter from Laodicea is actually Ephesians. And uh, likely though, Tychicus, he's bouncing these letters all around these towns of Asia Minor. But we're still not done because along with Colossians and Ephesians, Paul wrote another letter at the same time in that imprisonment. It's Philemon, which was not to a church. This is a letter he gave to an individual, Philemon. Where's Philemon from though? Colossae, the, the, he's, the, the church of Colossae meets in his house. So when Tychicus shows up to Colossae, he's got two letters for them, one for the church, one for Philemon. So we already have him carrying three letters of the New Testament. Let's just add one more because I mentioned how Paul, he's in the second Roman imprisonment. He's sending Tychicus to relieve Timothy. Well, that's when he's writing 2 Timothy. So, you know, without a doubt, Tychicus hands the letter we call 2 Timothy to Timothy in that time as well. So he put it all together. And this is just what we know of, that the Lord used this man Tychicus to deliver four inspired books of the New Testament. Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, Second Timothy. That, that's pretty amazing. And you've probably never even heard of him before. We find then that Tychicus, he's like one of those Sherpas on Mount Everest, right? They don't get the fame. They don't get the name recognition like the climbers, but they're doing pretty much the same work, like the same amount of labor is involved, sometimes even more. They're, they're doing all the behind the scenes, hauling the oxygen tanks up to all those base camps. And without their labor, nobody's getting to the top of the mountain, And likewise, without the sacrificial work of a guy like Tychicus, the ministry of Paul is not getting very far. It's not going beyond Rome. If Paul didn't have an extremely faithful and reliable partner to deliver his letters, all of his writings, which we rely on so much, would be good for nothing. This was before email, before telephone, before even a postal service. Back then, delivering mail was on you. You had to figure it out. And so what use would all of these writings be if the churches never received them? They never got these letters. It it would be for nothing. We would lack four key books of the New Testament. Of course, in God's providence, he would never let that happen. But he was going to use some faithful servant. Tychicus was that guy. Paul wrote these letters under under the inspiration of the Spirit. But if the Lord did not use a faithful servant like Tychicus, where would they be now? His work is just as essential. And talk about a significant supporting role. Tychicus himself left no writings, nothing that lasted. He did nothing noteworthy in the book of Acts, but he too laid down his life and his will to serve the Lord. To the world, his contribution might seem insignificant or forgettable, but not to the Lord. His contribution was essential and eternal. The name Tychicus itself means fortunate. And truly, Paul was fortunate to have such a ministry friend, this, this beloved brother, a faithful guy you can always count on just to do what, whatever needs to be done to serve the Lord, not to serve just Paul and build Paul's name, just whatever needs to be done to further the name of Christ and the work of the ministry. Paul could count on Tychicus. And I pray you would have that same resolve just to go the distance, just whatever is needed to serve the Lord and further his name, just, well, here I am. You might not be a pastor or or elder, but what stops you from just going the distance to serve the Lord with, with your gifts, the abilities he's given you, and do what, whatever it takes. Whatever is called on you to do. And I pray that you, Lycos, would be found just as faithful as Tychicus. Well, here in Colossians 4, let's keep going. We're considering a handful of verses. Tychicus, he gets a lion's share of attention in the verses we have for this morning. But he is not alone. There are many people. Let's add another name now. Another commendation. Let's move on. Secondly is Onesimus. A second character commended to the church and to us by example is Onesimus. This gets us in verse nine. Go, go there. Colossians four nine. With Tychicus, he says, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. He says they will inform you about the whole situation here. Here we learn that Tychicus was not being sent to the Colossian church alone, but he was accompanied by another friend of Paul, Onesimus. Onesimus, though, was actually from Colossae. He says he's one of your number. He came from them. Now he's going back, but the circumstances of his return are, we learn, much different than the circumstances of his departure. And the background to this guy, Onesimus, comes from that short book of the Bible, Philemon. I already mentioned how Paul was sending this letter to Philemon at the same time. Philemon was a leading member of the Colossian church. Again, the church met in his house. But as you read Paul's letter to Philemon, you very quickly realize why he's getting his own personal letter. And it has largely to do with this guy, Onesimus. If you want to follow real quick, you can Flip over to Philemon, it's right before Hebrews. You see, Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. Slavery was simply a widespread fact of life in the ancient Roman world. One in five people in Rome were slaves. It was not race-driven like American slavery. It was really war-driven and economy-based. If you were in overwhelming debt, you might sell your yourself into slavery to repay now, if you want to learn more about slavery in the ancient world and what the Bible actually says about it, we really devoted a whole sermon to it. You can go back and download the Colossians 3.22 message just from several weeks ago, Colossians 3.22. But for now though, here's what we know about Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's slave. He had run away. and At the same time, he almost certainly had stolen from Philemon in the process. And then Onesimus fled to Rome. That was a very common destination back then for a runaway slave. You get lost in the, in the crowd, the large population of Rome. However, in God's providence, Onesimus did not get lost in Rome. He got found in Rome from the language of Philemon. It's very clear that Onesimus came to salvation through the ministry of Paul in Rome. Like Philemon 10 says, Paul writes, I appeal to you. For my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He's his spiritual child. Even though imprisoned, somehow Onesimus came across the apostle Paul. And Paul told him of a savior who had come to seek and save that which was lost. People like Onesimus. He told him of Christ who died on the cross. And rose from the dead to pay the penalty of of sinners like Onesimus. And to redeem them to forgive them, to make them new. Even a slave could be redeemed and made no longer a slave, but free in Christ, even a child of God, a co-heir with him. And that happened to Onesimus. He came to call on Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He was born again. And with that salvation, Onesimus became a changed man. He wanted to give the, the rest of his life just to serve the Lord. And he did that first by just serving the apostle Paul, meeting his needs. Paul's on a type of house arrest. He can't go anywhere. He's fully at the mercy of of helpers for all of his needs. And Onesimus signed up to be one of those people just to meet the needs of Paul and his ministry. And so Onesimus became one of these beloved brothers of Paul. just a cherished friend. Paul affirms in Philemon 13 that he wished to keep Onesimus with him, he says that he might minister to Paul in his imprisonment for the gospel. He wanted to keep him just as, he's such a a minister to Paul, but Paul didn't keep him. He, He sent him back to Colossae. He sent him back to Philemon. Why? Well, I think he was just trying to put the glory of the gospel on display. And technically, by Roman law, for Onesimus to truly be counted free, Philemon, and his master, had to release him. And Philemon himself, being a believer in Christ Jesus, that's what he needed to do. In the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free. We're all one in Christ. Philemon needed to show that. And so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, but he puts this letter in his hand, It might have actually been Onesimus who is carrying this letter back to Philemon. We don't know actually for sure. But in this letter, Paul appeals to Philemon to, of his own free will, release Onesimus and even embrace him as a brother. Look at Philemon 16, if you happen to be there. He tells him to receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See so that same phrase again, beloved brother. Paul had called Tychicus his beloved brother. Philemon one, Paul calls Philemon his beloved brother. But Onesimus the slave is also his beloved brother. And that's because he's, he's not a slave. He's not on lesser terms. There, there's level ground at the foot of the cross, He's now an equal sharer in Christ and a member of the church and Onesimus or rather Philemon should should receive him as such and release him back to just full service and free service to Paul in the gospel. The New Testament doesn't record Philemon's response. What did he do? But it's pretty safe to say along with church history that the very fact that this personal letter to Philemon was preserved and then copied and distributed to the churches abroad and that it's now part of our inspired New Testament is proof enough that Philemon put the grace of the gospel on display and he released Onesimus. We can go back to Colossians 4 now. Here though, in Colossians 4, so that's just background. Here's Onesimus. In Colossians though... And Paul's not talking to Philemon, he's talking to the whole church and he's commending Onesimus to the whole church. He's, he, like Tychicus, Paul says, he's our faithful and beloved brother and he's going to join Tychicus. He's not just serving under, he's joining Tychicus to give them information about the situation. Onesimus to Paul is not just a returning slave. he is a co-laborer in the gospel. And he's now standing shoulder to shoulder with Tychicus as this fellow emissary from Paul. He was to join Tychicus, give them the full report of what was going on in Rome. The Colossian church may have thought the worst of Onesimus because when he left, he was not a believer. He had stolen. He had run away. Probably had a low view of him. But this is Paul vouching for him that they all might receive him now as a beloved brother in the Lord. Many lessons to be learned from the tale of Philemon and Onesimus. We'll save those for the future. After we finish Colossians, we'll eventually roll and preach right through Philemon. You you got to do both at the same time. So we'll, we'll pretty soon be preaching through Philemon. But for now, you see the glory of the gospel on display. And you see the power of the gospel to transform a life. I mean, it doesn't matter your past who you were before christ what matters is who you are now in christ the apostle paul himself was saul right the public enemy number 1 of the church he was conspiring to put christians to death but the lord transformed him by the power of the gospel and then put him into service that's all that matters and the same happened to Onesimus. he was transformed by faith in Christ, and lifted both both spiritually and socially to a new life. And this still happens. Everyone has a past. Everyone's past is marred by sin. We all once were dead and lost in our sin. But your past sin and your past status does not define you. It, it should not define you anymore. Rather, now your new name in Christ is what defines you and what should define you. And as you come to realize that the superabundance of, of grace and forgiveness brought to you by this Christ who served you and laid his life down for you, then you should now be just more than happy and willing to serve him and to lay down your life for him. That was Onesimus. He was ready to lay down his life now for his Lord. And I pray we can follow his lead Well, we're going to include one more. Thirdly here, a third character to examine. And their example is Aristarchus. Not going to finish them all today, but let's get Aristarchus in there. From verse 10, look there, back in Colossians 4, verse 10. He continues and says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Thirdly, we've got here Aristarchus. He's called Paul's fellow prisoner. It's not actually mean he was necessarily actually imprisoned there with uh, Paul in Rome. It could mean that, but Paul uses this term sometimes to speak of guys who they had essentially given up their own will to serve Paul during his imprisonment. That's probably what's going on with Aristarchus, given what we know about him elsewhere. Aristarchus has a long history with Paul. He goes back before Tychicus. In fact, Aristarchus was a traveling companion with Paul before that. Remember that trip? Paul is collecting that special offering to take back to Jerusalem. And he recruited these seven emissaries to join him. Well, he specifically sent for Aristarchus from Thessalonica. That's where he's from, to join him on this trip. And so like Tychicus, this guy Aristarchus was one of those seven representatives on that trip. Aristarchus shows up in Ephesus to join Paul to get ready for this trip. And when he gets there, there's a riot surrounding the apostle Paul. Didn't have anything to do with Aristarchus, but just over Paul. Paul had been in Ephesus for 2 years at that point, and he had basically converted so many people that it was bad for business. You know, all these gentiles, they're no longer worshiping their little silver statue of Artemis or whoever. They, they were turning away from their pagan idolatry. So you had all the town silversmiths saying like, this is bad for business. Like he's taking away all of our business. So they, they lead a riot against the apostle Paul. This is Acts 19. That mob though, they form a mob to, to get Paul. Now that mob never gets to Paul. But Acts 19.29 says they got Aristarchus instead. And they dragged him away. He wasn't killed but I'm sure he was roughed up quite a bit. I mean, just talk about a scary moment. Can you imagine what it's really like to be at the hands of an angry mob? You cannot rationalize with an angry mob. You can't speak to an angry mob. You just suffer at the hands of an angry mob. Now was Aristarchus. He's just starting the trip. Like he just showed up. And this is the perfect time for Aristarchus to say, you know, this is not what I signed up for. That is like a, a pleasure cruise to Jerusalem. I didn't mean to, to put my neck on the line, but that's not his response. He doesn't go back home. He doesn't turn, turn away. He doesn't retreat. Shortly thereafter, Paul and the, the group leaves Ephesus to go on this trip to Jerusalem. And Erisarchus, he's still there. He's right there with him. He's still willing to suffer and risk his personal safety to just serve the Lord through Paul. And get this, he would suffer again. Aristarchus gets the short end of the stick. He would suffer again. You know, we noted Paul gets to Jerusalem. He is arrested. He's held by the Romans for two years. He appeals to Caesar, shipped off to Rome. Now, according to Acts 27, verse 2, Aristarchus is with him on that return trip to Rome. That just means that Aristarchus was on that ship. If you've read Acts 27, you know what happens to that ship. That fateful voyage by sea where Paul and 276 other passengers suffer a a terrible shipwreck that almost takes all of their lives. They almost all die at sea, but by God's providence and Paul's leadership, every life was spared. But Aristarchus was on that ship. He too nearly again died just by being associated with Paul. You fast forward two more years, Paul has been in prison in Rome, waiting trial for Caesar. Aristarchus, like Tychicus, he's still there, just hanging around, serving. And now Paul, from that cell, writes to the Colossian church. That here we have in verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. He's just here serving me in these four years of imprisonment. Well, he sends you his greetings. Nothing more said of him here, but really behind this name, you find really an amazing testimony of devotion and sacrifice and faithfulness, even at great personal risk or at the cost of suffering. We see in Aristarchus that this willingness to, to go the distance to serve Christ, whatever the cost might be. I mean, Christ laid down his life for me in, to the point of death. Anything less is, is suitable for me to do in, re, in response. He was willing to likewise lay down his life. For the name of Christ. Well, there's still five more greetings in this passage from five more co workers and great examples of faithfulness behind them. We'll save that for next time. But already you should be able to start to see the big theme here of just faithfulness. Step back and consider the bigger picture. What is the Lord doing through this thing called the church? You know, over in Ephesians, under the same circumstances, Paul writes to them and encourages these new believers. He tells them this. Just listen to Ephesians 2.19. He says to them, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole body being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Just think about that. And something remarkable is, is going on here. God in this thing we call the church, he's really just creating a new dwelling place for his spirit, this eternal body, a holy temple. Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. And it says the apostles and prophets, especially in writing the New Testament, they are the foundation of this temple. And yes, the Lord chose them and used them to play an important role. They're the foundation. They have big names. Yes. But listen, every brick counts in this temple. Every stone matters. And all of them are being fitted together in the Lord's beautiful design. To the Lord, every single brick, you may not be one of those big foundation stones, but every single piece of this building, the church, is valued by the Lord. That's what we are as a church. The church is a living body, a living temple fit for the living God. The question is, where do you fit in? How do you fit in? Because all are called to contribute now to the, the building up and the building out of this body and the growth and maturity of the body. It's not just up to apostles or today, just to pastors. Everyone needs to play a part, contributing to the the building up of this temple. Sadly though, all too many Christians today, they don't really play a part. You might say they don't have an active role really in any sense in the work of the ministry today. The vast majority of Christians are spectators I think most Christians in America would more aptly be described as merely attendees of a church. That's just kind of what they are, how they'd be described. They're just an attendee. Most are not even expected to engage. Churches aren't called congregations, they're audiences. They sit in darkness because the spotlight is on the stage. The service is more of a spectacle, a show. And people, they're not really expected to labor in the work of the ministry. Like show up give money, do that again. But this is not the way, this does not please the Lord, and this is not how the church is built. That happens as all of us externally share the gospel with the world around us and then internally serve one another to build up one another in the faith. That's something I can't do by myself. Every single believer has to contribute to that work and is called to. That's not a passive thing. An attendee is, well, not doing it. It's an active thing. So think about yourself and your life in the church. Are you active or passive? How would you be described? What would be said of you? If your name was included in one of these greeting passages, how would it go? You know, greetings from so-and-so, a casual attendee of Berean Bible Church. Would that be you? Or would you be described a beloved brother or sister, a faithful servant, a co-laborer, a bondslave slave of Christ Jesus? Think about these things. Reflect on yourself and your testimony before the Lord, your example before your wife and kids, for the men, before your family, before your community, and in this church. There is glory to be had here. It belongs all Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be his when he returns. But I tell you that those who give themselves over to the work of his ministry for his name, they get to uniquely share in his glory when he returns. They will not be found ashamed. shame. Christ alone dwells at the top of that mountain. And you know what? He could get there all by himself. He doesn't need anyone for support. But in his glory, he's chosen to use us and equip us for this work. Even to reward us, he invites us up to himself, he will eventually bring us up to himself. But for us and for our time, may we simply be found increasingly faithful in how we serve him. Whatever role you play, just be found increasingly faithful. And you will indeed on that day hear those words from our master, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so let's press on and be faithful. And pray with me. Lord God, we pray at this time for a resolve to be found faithful. That's all we really need to worry about. We don't need to stress over results, although we care about them, but they're often and largely in your hands as the sovereign God providentially ruling this church. And you don't need us, Lord. You can do all by yourself. You could raise up rocks to call on the name of the Lord and be witnesses But you've chosen in your glory to use us, the church, disciples, made new in the image of Christ, to share the gospel, to tell the world about Christ, and to serve one another, to build up this body. And we all have to play a part. If we don't, the church will suffer. Our witness will suffer. Our growth will suffer. We will suffer even if we don't realize it. You intend this for our joy and for your glory as well. Just convict us to be faithful. May we join this list of men and women who have served in the past. Their examples are preserved for us, for our instruction and edification that that we would just add our names to the list. Found faithful, beloved brothers and sisters. I'm encouraged because I know we have so many of them at this church, but help us all to excel still more, Lord, and to just be found increasingly faithful to the cause of Christ in this day and age. Be with us and may you be glorified by our service. In Christ's name we pray, amen.